For years, Colin McCann has devoted his life to writing and helping others find themselves as writers. His latest book, A Paragon, is a masterpiece based on the true life story of two men whose daughters were killed in the Middle East. The book was, of course, long listed for the Booker Prize, which is a huge achievement. But honestly, the real achievement is the book itself. I'll let Colm explain it. He is, of course, the Distinguished Professor of Creative Writing in the Master of Fine Arts program at Hunter College, New York. Before the election, I managed to find an hour to sit down with him to talk about this life-affirming, one-of-a-kind book, The Power of Writing, his charity narrative for his life and an awful lot more. This is, of course, a snippet of the full conversation that you can hear over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. I'm delighted to announce that having listened to your feedback, we've come up with a way for you to just pay once and get everything across the year. It's an annual membership designed to save you money and hassle gets even better i've got a 15 percent discount on the annual membership being offered at the moment and we've even launched a gifting tier so that if you wanted to gift irishman abroad annual membership to yourself or someone you know that likes the show there is that tier there and you'll also receive the now very rare irishman abroad t-shirt and pin which is usually reserved for our guests our chosen charity partner is of course jigsaw.ie they are the center for youth mental health in ireland and they offer incredible services for young people experiencing difficult times or just trying to gain the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life jigsaw can't survive in life without our support so pop over there now jigsaw.ie the chosen charity partner of an irishman abroad that's the small talk now let's go down to business now your program what's the big idea well they're going to know the irish much better we've now got to know how largely their mind works i moved over here and immediately i had to up my game i could not have done the job i i did for quite a number of years in ireland i had to go and earn my living in england i think a lot of it's in my hair i think there's a lot of ireland in here i had an irish upbringing 20 years after an irishman couldn't get a fucking job we had the presidency it was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in london no blacks no irish no dogs never has a nation so small inspired so much in another so you could say there's always been a little green behind the red white and blue our family is very irish you know now ladies and gentlemen we have a very special announcement to make at this stage would you welcome please the wonderful charlie Thrigo! Colin McCann, it's brilliant to have you on Irishman Abroad. And the only thing I could think when I was reading the reviews of this book was that must be slightly terrifying as much as it is gratifying to see these things written down about something that you've ploughed your life into and were terrified to take on. Is it scary to see those kind of reviews? Yeah, the thing about reviews, Jared, is that 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 if you believe the good ones, you must also, by natural corollary, <laughs> you must believe the bad ones. So that so so the fact of the matter is that you really can't believe any of them. I mean, and 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 sometimes a bad review can 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 do so much good for you because you can learn something from if it's a smart bad review not a nasty bad mm-hmm. review and sometimes a good review can 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 reveal something that you know you can explore further down down, down the line but um 
it is, I mean, I wrote about Israel and Palestine. I'm Irish. I live in New York, you know, and, and I was taken on territory that was sort of unchartered uh, for me anyway, in many ways. So, yes, it was it, it was terrifying and supremely gratifying to for 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 for, for the, the the different reviews to come in and they've been sort of overwhelmingly positive which is good too but that costs a lot of money as well <laughs> i mean the so, things that are being said though in these reviews like this is a novel that will change the world i mean i agree like this this is a, a unique piece of work that if read by the right people can make big change that wasn't the aim, though, was it? Was it the aim? I mean, the aim was to honor the stories of these two men, uh, Rami and Bassam, who uh, one of them is Israeli, the other is is Palestinian. They both lost, lost their daughters and they're the most courageous men I've ever met in my life. They remind me of people in Northern Ireland in many ways, in fact, who use the force of their grief and turn it into something good. So the aim was to honor them. And I think that their stories can change the world. I think the power of what they have done is so extraordinary that um, there, 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 there can be an, a, a, an upwelling from what it is that they've done. I mean, I can see, you know, 10,000 Greta Thunbergs coming from, you know, all over the world telling the story of, of Rami and Bassam. I happen to be one of them, but I also knew, I will say this, I also knew that I had to tell it differently because you know this could be a sort of twee story about two men who become friends and they're from opposite sides of the fence and it's so much more complicated than all of that so i wrote it in a thousand and one different chapters sometimes just a tiny sentence here and there even two of the sections were blank in fact but um for a very specific reason but you know i wanted to create a different form uh, a different literary form that sort of I don't know, maybe mirrored how uh, our consciousness works or doesn't work um, on the Internet. And also the way we think about stories and storytelling now and how you and I are involved in every single story that happens um, around the world, whether we like it now sometimes or not. I mean, it brought to mind a guest we had on a while back, Richard Moore, who I'm not sure you're aware of this man. He was shot by an RUC member in the face as a child and lost his sight and tracked the man down decades later to forgive him, to tell him that he forgave him. And this RUC man wouldn't accepted the forgiveness, but wouldn't apologize and okay. uh, yeah so the you know the Dalai Lama has says that Richard Moore is you know the embodiment of his teachings because he he truly lives it this part of this going deeper into connection between two people because you know you know they're friends him and this RUC man the, this friendship friendship is at the at the center of this was that do you think the part that spoke to you when you heard the stories first, that these two had this bond and this, you know, they had married their lives. Yeah, it wasn't quite 
the friendship that, that that really interested me at first. Um, you know, I went to, to to Israel and Palestine with a group of musicians and artists and activists from a, a non-profit agency that I sort of co-founded called Narrative Four, where we take young people and you know they 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 tell stories to one another, sometimes across the divide, sometimes not. But we were on this trip, and on the second to last day, I was in a town called Beit Jala, which is um, just outside uh, Jerusalem, and walked up the staircase. And there's these two ordinary men. I mean, they could have been Irish men sitting there, you know, and, and just sitting there at the table drinking coffee, one of them having a smoke. And, and, and I went into the room with my group and sat down and I knew that they were going to tell me a story and I was ready for it. But when they told me their stories and went, I was completely gutted. I mean, I had the heart torn out of me. And after half an hour, I knew my world was changed just by the force of listening to how they lost their their, their daughters, but how they decided then, you know, that they weren't going to turn that into revenge, how they weren't going to, you know, take it out on, on, on the world or turn to violence and, 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 and instead turn to this... Um, this power of, of, of storytelling, traveling the world, t- telling the stories of their daughters, whether it be in your living room or in my living room or in schools or in schools in Israel or schools in the West Bank or sitting in offices of senators and U.S. senators in, in, in the capital. And I, just, I was taken by just the power of these to individuals and I just thought, you know, somehow I want to understand that. And I think when we write, we write to what it is that we want to understand. And I knew nothing. I don't know if you know much about um, the, the, you know, the Middle Eastern conflict or anything like that. But at first, and maybe even now, to be honest, I didn't know all that much about the history of what was going on there. What I really wanted to get to was the human story that was there, the, the incredible human story about these two men and their daughters. So the power of story is like this. There's an incredible serendipity to the whole thing, really. I mean, the fact that you know you set up narrative four, that that is built on the idea of the power of stories and that it brings you to this place that you hear this story. It, like it, it truly is the planets aligning. Did the obsession with stories or the, the passion for stories begin with your father conjuring his own stories out of nowhere? That's a great question. You know, um, I grew up in Dublin. My dad, who had been a football player, played for Charlton Athletic, in fact, in, in London, he was a goalkeeper, had come back from London to Dublin and set up as a journalist in the in the evening press. On the side, he wrote books and he wrote books about many different things, but his most successful books were his books about um, kids' soccer. And he had this uh, character by the name of Georgie Good, uh, obviously based a little bit on a spin-off from Georgie Best. But Georgie Good is uh, is an itinerant um, and, and a football player in in England who only has um, plimsolls or, 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 or runners. Uh, and doesn't have football boots and joins these teams around the country and 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 it was a fantastic series and 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 I would hear my dad you know clacking away on his typewriter in a shed outside and then he would bring these long pieces of um, long rolls of paper to me sometimes and, and ask me when I was eight, nine years old to read the story of um, Georgie Good and, 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 and you know I didn't realise it at the time but that was my first sort of editorial um, yeah. experience 
you know, amazing stuff. I mean, it's so early, like the my wife is a Montessori teacher, she's, so she's all about the absorbent mind and the idea that if you reach a child at that age, that, you know, it becomes embedded in the hard drive. There's no deleting it for you. This is formative and it leads to you, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds mad to say it, working as a sports reporter at the age of 12. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were matches in, 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 in Dublin, you know, like uh, Tech United and Workmen's Club and, and Bray Wanderers before they became a, a, a bigger club that um, all the newspapers used to want to get, um, you know, a you know, a hundred word report on the match. So I would go on my bicycle from tech to workman's club, sometimes all the way out to Bray and sit and watch the match and then dial in a report um, an hour later. And then the report would be in the in, in the papers the next day. I got paid 10 pounds a match, which, a which was quite a lot of money <laughs> at the time. And, you know, that's that's what in the late 70s, I started I started doing that. And, you know, that gave me a grounding, but it also, you know, uh, had me talking to people, you know, because I'd be asking the managers and, you know, who's the fellow who just scored the goal and things <laughs> like that. And they were looking at me like, who are you? What, you know, like you, what, you're, you're, you're barely out of your nappies and, 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 and you're writing about <laughs> about this stuff. And uh, but it didn't see it didn't seem odd to me, um, you know, at, at the time, it was a way to make a few bob. And I love football i mean i grew up on it and 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 so that was part and parcel of it uh, for my sins by the way and my sins are many and manifold but for my sins i, I from a very young age i was a stoke city supporter oh. <laughs> i don't know if you I don't know what what your allegiance is what's your allegiance oh well, look i i couldn't be more of a cliche an irish guy that supports liverpool <laughs> Oh, that's good. I kind of like Liverpool. I mean, you know, I think I think it's okay to support to support Liverpool. Liverpool is like, you know, what? Uh, you know, it's East Dublin and Dublin is West Liverpool. <laughs> I mean, we're very close to them. So I, I yeah, How I, did I, you I arrive forgive at Stoke, you, the Liverpool. Though? That's crazy. Goalkeepers. goalkeepers. My dad was a goalkeeper, and so the best goalkeepers played for uh, for Stoke. Uh, Gordon Banks, Peter Shilton. So mm. he'd bring us across to watch the matches, and I'd, I'd be watching Terry Conroy, you know, running down the wing, and my dad would be like, "No, no, look at Banksy, look at Banksy, he's down there in the box, look at the way he's standing." And I was like, "Dad, no, I'm a midfielder. I don't want to look at the, <laughs> at that stuff." But I became an, an ardent Stoke fan, and 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 have been since you know since the age of three or four. So. Um, been been some ups and downs there, I tell you. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like, and when I've spoken to sports journalists, they describe a similar thing to what you're describing now, where they were either writing reports at home, uh, keeping a little journey. I think you and McKenna talked about writing uh, his own reports that were never going to be published. He wasn't getting a tenor from anybody, but the match had been lit. What made you jump ship at 21 years old to go to America in the belief that you were going to write your novel and what brought you down that path rather than you know the obvious one would be head back over to the UK and report on this thing that you love 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, I was working with the um, with the Irish press. I also worked with the Herald and I worked with the, 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 the Independent. And, you know, I loved doing journalism and I liked doing, you know, big investigative stuff. I remember writing a lot about the heroin epidemics that were going on. And, and But at a certain stage, I sort of looked at myself and said, well, you really want to try to write a book. So I went to the United States and actually lived in a house with about 17 Irish people in, in, in Hyannis for, for a summer, bought myself a typewriter, tried to write and realized at the end of it all that, you know, I had nothing to write about. I really had nothing to write about. And you know, that was a really formative moment for me because what happened then was I had been reading a lot of the beat writers and 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 and, and I wanted to, to discover what this mythical America was. And I ended up going on a bicycle uh, for a basically the next year and a half, almost two years across the United States, starting up in the northeast of the United States, all the way down to Georgia and Florida, across to New Orleans, Texas, Mexico, New Mexico, back up through Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and finished um, coming across the Golden Great Bridge about 8,000 miles, 12,000 kilometers later, a changed person, 23 years old, and firmly then believing in the power of stories and storytelling because of the people that I met along the road. And we would need, Charlotte, we'd need like five hours for me to tell you some of the crazy stories about uh, what happened to me on the road. But suffice it to say, I met some of the most spectacular people who brought me into their houses, who brought me into their lives, who looked after me, gave me work and told me their their life story as, as I sort of went along. And it sounds sort of romantic and wonderful, but sometimes it was hard. It was no fun. I spent a year and a half in a tent and a sleeping bag, basically. And there were times I'd, I'd look at myself, you had a job in Dublin. You had a, you're working for a newspaper. What the hell are you doing out in the middle of Wyoming, you know, getting your getting sunburnt and, you know, having no food and, and, and thinking about where it is you're going to sleep for the night. But in the end, especially now, I'm 55 now. I was 21 then. I look back on it as the most formative time of my life, without a doubt. I've heard you say a few times that... Uh, quote, we should be forever jumping off cliffs, developing our wings on the way down. Had you ar- arrived at that thought prior to that journey? I don't know. My folks uh, were, were, you know, in Dublin, I was allowed go out at the age of like, I don't know, 14, 15, I'd be gone for an evening and I'd go out on my bicycle and I'd go up to Dundalk and I'd sleep out and I'd, and, and, or I'd go down to, to, to the Wicklow Hills and, and, and they were, they allowed me, I think, the ability to, to, to do a lot of this stuff. They're brilliant parents and, 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 and not at all sort of, you know, in any way dismissive of what it was that, 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 that I was doing, but it was just that I was allowed to do a lot of, a, a lot of things. And I've always been really interested um, in other other people and I think that was it but but I think a lot of Irish people are that way I don't think I'm unique in 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 in, in any sense I was lucky that I, I I was able to survive and make a living and make a living as a writer doing this sort of stuff because I've I've had some 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 pretty spectacular adventures in my life but but you know after that bicycle journey I tried to write for a couple of years and I failed miserably 
I mean, miserably, I wrote two books that 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 I would be ashamed to, to show anybody, and they were just god awful. But I, I think you have to fail, and 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 so 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 I like, I like that Vonnegut quote. Yeah, we should be continually jumping off of cliffs and developing our wings on the way down. But I also really like the Samuel Beckett quote, is where he says, "No matter, try again, fail again, fail better," because that's what it's about. It's about like trying your best, trying your damnedest, and 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 if you fail then you fail and you get up and you and and, 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 and and you go again it really feels like that's a lost thing now I don't know about you but there, there is a sense that there is a greater pressure on young people to succeed immediately and that if you aren't succeeding right away then you're not on your right path whereas I know from performing stand-up if I knew how bad I was in the beginning, I would have quit right there and then. But I didn't actually have the context or framework to understand what I was doing or what was wrong back then. But it, I really, really regard it as absolutely essential to getting to where I am now. You must see that with your students. Yeah, I mean, it terrifies me. I see it with my students and with my kids. I mean, I have a 23-year-old, I have a 21-year-old, I have a 17-year-old, and I see the what what the world expects of them. Although it's been disrupted a little bit by by, by the, the 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 pandemic, and maybe it'll disrupt it enough so that things don't become so logical anymore. But what I'm tired of is, you know, people sort of say with my students, they you know, go to college, they're good writers. And then they come to my MFA program, which is in Hunter College in, 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 in New York to spend two more years, some of the best young writers in America. And, and some of them then just think that they're going to step into a novel or step into it. And, 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 and it just it just doesn't work that way. And I, and, and, and I wish that we would all be given a, 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 a gap year when we were all about 23 years old or 24 years old, a gap year to do something that doesn't compute. And, I, and, and I'm not saying that has to be political. You know, you don't have to go, you know, join the Peace Corps or something like that. Maybe you'll go join the army. I mean, or, you know, go to Guatemala and, and, and work with kids down there or go to Microsoft and work, you know, do something that wouldn't normally compute in the logic of your life. And that's the sort of stuff that's not just it disrupts you, but disrupts you in a good way. I mean, on that journey across America, you have said in the past that you got the shit kicked out of you a couple of times. You were digging ditches. You were really scrounging to get by. And you settle on Texas, of all places, as the the place you're, you're going to make the next move from, essentially working as a wilderness educator with young offenders. Can you tell us anything about that decision and that that must have been an unbelievable period. That was an amazing period too. This was after the bicycle journey. I went back down to Texas and I ended up working in this wilderness camp with the juvenile delinquents, kids who'd been in and out of juvie uh, prison, broken homes and things like that. And I would take six to eight of them at a time and we would live for three months in in the wilderness and it was kind of spectacular and messy and 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 and, and you know we built these shelters in in the middle of um, these creeks and in, uh, in the middle of nowhere an outdoor latrine a gravity fed shower and um 
these kids who'd been through really rough things in their lives basically spent the next three months uh, outdoors in a a wilderness survival situation. I learned as much from them, if not more from them, than uh, they did from me. At at that stage, I was was only 23, 24, and these kids were 16, 17, and they could have easily handled me and run away and taken my knife or done whatever else they wanted to do with me. But instead, we went on this sort of spectacular journey together. And I still hear from some of those kids, um, you know, they have jobs now. Some of them went to prison. Uh, some of them did go to prison afterwards, but most of them got out and got out of that, that, that vicious cycle. And now they have families themselves and they remember that moment when they, like you know, lived in the wilderness for the, for that amount of time. It was it was a really it was a really formative thing for me. Yes, I would. I'd imagine that. I mean, when you come across Bassam and Rami, that it brought you back to that place because, you know, so much of honouring their story, honouring their truth and what their grief and what they'd been through was down to your capacity, not just to write, but to be silent and listen. I hadn't thought of it that way, but 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 I think I think you're right. I think everything I've done, you know, in my life after the 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 the, the bicycle journey was uh, about trying to learn how to listen and how to empathise and to try to understand what it means to be someone else. With Rami and Bassam, you know, I I went over there to Israel and Palestine to Jerusalem to Jericho, and just hung out with them. You know, I would learn more walking through a checkpoint with Bassam. You know, Bassam is Palestinian, and learn more about walking through a checkpoint than 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 anything else just the way he smoked a cigarette when he went to a checkpoint and if it's if a checkpoint was a one cigarette checkpoint or a four cigarette checkpoint and if he might get stopped and if he might get hassled and 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 and, and his patience. The Palestinian people have this incredible patience, this samud that, um, you know, is extraordinary to watch. And the young people are so creative and, and, and brilliant. And, and and given some of the situations that they, that, that they have to go through, I think they've got to be among the most resilient people on earth. And it was fantastic just to hang with someone like Bassam and, and listen to the ordinary moments and watch him play in solitaire with his with his wife outside and under the Jericho stars and then also to listen to Rami you know and Rami is the the, 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 the Israeli man who's uh, Bassam's best friend and you know and you know Rami's story was, was spectacular too and they told me things Jared they told me things that they'd never told even their kids before you know and uh, that was that, that that was pretty extraordinary they became be, became my best friends it's, you know and they still are what always you, will be in fact what do you put that down to i mean like i'm i'm absolutely fascinated by that alone i mean it's essentially my job here is to make people feel comfortable enough to share you know you you only met them in that room with that group from narrative 4 I mean, how did you win that confidence and that trust? I went back. I sat with them. I said, I want to write a book about you. And they said, OK. I said, are you mad? I <laughs> like, I'm going to write a novel. They said, OK. 
Uh, and I said, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I might make things up. They said, OK. And then I realized something very important. They had lost the thing that was most important to them. So the worst that it, that could happen to them had already happened to them. And, and so some idiot reporter, journalist, writer, novelist coming along and getting something wrong about them would not be, you know, fundamentally change their lives. They knew that I would go to the heart of their message. I think they trusted me because their message is we need to know each other. It's like, you know, exactly like what, 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 what you do. We need to we need to look each other in the eye. We need to know each other. And, you know, it's tragic and it's comic and it's, you know, it's all of these different things. Uh, but if we don't know each other six feet above ground, we will know each we, will, we won't know. We will know each other six feet below ground. That's their message. And, you know, it has nothing to do with one state, two states, eight states, federation, confederation, or any of that sort of stuff, which is messy and and, and, and necessary. Their message has to do with if we're going to do anything at all, we have to know each other first. And they knew that I was going to harbor that message. So they trusted me in that sense. I mean, a lot of your work and the things you've written have emerged from trauma, would you agree? When you were growing up, I mean, Northern Ireland was just so different to what we understand it to be now. So there you have it, a little taste of Colin McCann. You really need to hear the rest of this interview and all of our interviews over at Irishman Abroad on Patreon. The premium feed is over there. You can get access to absolutely everything. 400 or so episodes from our archive, our other weekly episode with Marion McKeown and our other weekly podcast on running with Sonia O'Sullivan. I mean, if this stuff tickles your fancy, there's only one way to get it and there's only one way for our show to continue. Sign up for the annual membership. It's never been a better time with that 15% discount that I mentioned. And of course, the gifting tier. If you want to give yourself a little Christmas gift for less than, uh, I think it's 50 euros, you can get the whole thing for the year. Uh, I can't do much better than that. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. Please go over and support them. Producer is Brian Connolly. Extra research and guest arrangement is by John Marr today. And uh, Tina and Mikey make this possible. But you make this show continue. So consider it. Pop over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Or maybe have a look at Jigsaw or sorry, Jigzer.com. That's my web website, not to be confused with Jigsaw. My website, Jigzer.com, where you can get the Irishman Abroad Christmas cards, which launched this week.